this episode of 9-2-I Talks, lawyer and writer Linda Hirschman discusses her new book, Reckoning, the Epic Battle Against Sexual Abuse and Harassment, with author and New York Magazine contributor Rebecca Traster. The conversation was recorded on June 19, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you to Linda for having this conversation and also for writing this really remarkable book, um, which is like a readable story. Uh, no, but this is so important. <laughs> so taking these incredibly thorny, nuanced questions of law and habit and power and gender and race and turning them into a yarn that takes us through decades worth of um, politics and social upheaval is such an important service because it gives all of those of us who want to think about these issues in the present moment in our lives and moving forward a text from which we can work. And that is a remarkable service, and I thank you for it. Thank you very much for those kind words, Rebecca. Um, I would love it. if I know you would like it as well. <laughs> um, if you would just start reading at the beginning very briefly. So since I'm here at the 92nd Street Y, I am guessing that you know <clears throat> how to read. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, you actually do not need me to read my book to you, since you're all going to go and buy it after the meeting is over. <laughs> but if you would just give me one minute of your patience and tolerance, I would like to share with you just a tiny little bit of my deathless prose. Tanya Harrell was just doing her job at a New Orleans McDonald's in 2017 when a guy she worked with shoved her into the bathroom, locked the door, and tried to rape her. The only thing the 20-year-old could do was cry and cry until he heard the manager calling, where were we, she said, and he finally let me go. Harold wasn't going to get any help, she knew, because the last time she'd complained that a coworker had harassed her, her shift manager at McDonald's suggested the touching was consensual. Sure enough, when she told the new manager about the attempted rape, her boss treated her story like it was nothing. Harold, who had left high school so she could work to pay for the medicine that her grandmother, who had raised her, needed, could not leave her low-wage job. One year later, on May 22, 2018, Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, an initiative founded by prominent women in the entertainment industry, announced that it would be paying for Tanya Harrell and a dozen other low-wage workers around the country to sue McDonald's and its franchisees for harassment. After all, sexual harassment had been recognized as a violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 for more than 30 years. What a difference a year makes. What difference does a year make? Not that much difference. What difference does 50 years make? 
That's my story. So I am so glad that you start at that point, and, this, and, and the convergence was not planned, because the thing that I wanted to start with, with you, was the, the fact that you're telling the story of a movement that is spread out, in this case, over 50 years, five decades. And something that I am asked, I'm sure you've been asked it one million times over the past couple of years, is this a moment or a movement? Yes. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about what constitutes the, the, the adding up, the accrual of moments and individual years that create a long-term process that eventually becomes discernible as a movement. What does it mean to be a movement? You've, this is this, your second book that chronicles, well, third, third yeah, that chronicles a mass social movement unfolding over a period of many years. Right. What characterizes that movement? So there have been many movements in the years that I've been looking at. This book starts in 1969. My book, Victory, the Triumphant Gay Revolution, started in the late 19th century when gay and lesbian people left the farm and small towns and came to the cities. So, um, so they're all pretty long stories. Um, and I have, in the years that I wrote about these movements, the gay revolution, the legal feminist movement, the sexual movement against sexual abuse and harassment, and I'm working on a book on abolition. So, I, okay, in those years, there have been many moments that did not become movements. Mm -hmm. So. People start down the road that I chart, and sometimes it just does not take hold. Occupy Wall Street, one might argue that they started a conversation about inequality, but so far inequality in America is actually worse than it was when they met, and they did not survive as, an, as a, what I would call an identifiable entity. So I ignore those movements. <laughs> I don't write about the ones that don't succeed. But if they spark something, or if they speak of a spark that's under the, right, like Polly Murray refuses to give up a seat on a bus in what, the 1930s, 1940s, right. and yet, and that's not Rosa Parks refusing to give up a seat on the bus in 1955, and yet it speaks to a burning under... Oh, but, but she, there was already an established civil rights movement, I mean, right. the NAACP is a road or that. Right. So, um, so what do I look for? I look for um, movements that succeed because my goal is just what you said, to give people a text from which they can build future social change. So I'm interested in understanding the movements that have succeeded so that I can tell you how they do it, okay? So for instance, um, I have rules about resisting the siren song to make no change until you can make all change. This is a subject that we may touch on further. I have my second rule is, my, actually, that's my second rule. My first rule is take the moral high ground that is characteristic of all of the movements that I have chronicled, including abolition, which will be my next book. 
And my third rule is have weekly meetings. <laughs> and I got, right, what's the most successful social movement? Churches, they have weekly meetings. <laughs> so I, I've, I didn't like cook this up, right? I, although I've been known to do that. I, I get it from the data of the movements that I study. So I was a feminist since Andrew Hacker gave me my copy of The Feminine Mystique of Cornell in 1966. Um, and so I was watching the feminist movement to see how it was doing. And I noticed that the, let me just call it the gay revolution, use an old fashioned term from the early days of that movement. I noticed they were doing better. <laughs> so I thought that's interesting. What are they doing that the feminists aren't doing? And that started me on my quest to look at the movements and see what worked. Um, those are the things that work. Now, how do I characterize success? Um, I would say that you have, in America, you have to make legal change, political change, and cultural change. And the only, the only movements that I write about are movements that help people who are less powerful. One of the most successful movements in the 20th century and 21st century, and I certainly hope I do not die before we see the end of it, is the revival of conservative politics in America. It's a hugely successful social movement, and I have been watching it because this is what I am interested in. Um, but I, it started in 1955 in William Buckley's living room. And I won't write about it because I don't want to spend my days in the company of those people. <laughs> but whose mission is to preserve and enlarge their, pow their own power. That's exactly right, right Rebecca. I, you know, someone asked me in the, have something having to do with the publicity for the book, when was the first time that I ever expressed myself politically? And it was, <clears throat> I remember it because my father had a heart attack over it. It was in 1956 when I was 12. And I wrote a letter to the editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer where I was growing up because they had characterized Jomo Kenyatta, the leader of the Kenyan liberation movement in Africa, as a Mau Mau in the most destructive possible way. And I, at 12, thought that they were wrong. So I wrote a letter to them. And I got the paper off the stoop one morning, and would you believe my letter was in the paper? <laughs> I do not think they knew I was 12. Um, and I, of course, ran up to my parents' bedroom all excited. My letter's in the paper, my letter's in the paper. My father, who was a small businessman in Cleveland, Ohio, was not ecstatic. <laughs> but I was concerned about the movements for the oppressed and marginalized from 1956. So in this movement that you're chronicling, and any movement that extends over years, decades, centuries in some cases, um, there are ebbs and flows. And especially when you're sort of identifying the moments it, that feel successful, they are often followed quite quickly by moments that feel like all that success has been tamped out or reversed. And that has happened, I, I would argue, and you argue here, within the, I mean, this is what we're talking about in the, in the 80s, for example. Oh, no question. Right, and, and how do you, 
how, does, how do those ebbs and flows and the sort of fallow periods within a span of 50 years fit into the lifespan of social progress? I fear that they are inevitable. Mm -hmm. um, I have never, and I, you know, I mean, I've looked at most of the major social movements in America, both 19th century and 20th and 21st, and I've never found one that did not meet with radical resistance. I don't write about the Whiskey Rebellion, for example, <laughs> because they lost, right, the end, right? Um, the labor movement, which was my great love, um, met a terrible defeat um, in, in 1978 um, when labor law reform failed to pass Congress and in 1981 Reagan broke the air traffic controller strike. Um, so you have, and they have not come back yet. Though, it may, right? some of the labor agitation that is happening is directly related to Me Too. The fast food workers are striking not only for higher wages, but in response to sexual harassment that they have suffered. And they represented Tanya Harrell. Right, that's Tanya right. Harrell, whose so story that's the SEIU, right. and right. The, that's the Service Employees International Union and the fast food workers. So there's union history behind it, which is one of the reasons why I love it so much. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is possible that we are finally seeing, but from 1980 to 2020, we're talking 40 years, that's a long time for a backlash. It's a big fallow period. That's a big fallow period, and I'm not sure that we're out of it yet. Yeah. Um, I haven't, even Elizabeth Warren hasn't talked about labor law reform that I know of, and that's absolutely critical. So, there will be setbacks, and um, and the the way that movements come back is by sticking to the critical rules. Mind your knitting. Take the moral high ground. That's one place where the union movement really lost a lot of ground, and have weekly meetings. And you also have to get a little lucky. You have to get a little lucky. Um, the uh, feminist movement addressing, the feminist movement addressed many things, unequal pay and um, uh, represent, you know, age discrimination in the airlines and, uh, you know, pregnancy benefits. I mean, the, the feminist movement representing women has a huge range of interests. And one of the interests that came relatively early, as you'll see when you read the book, is the interest in protecting women against being sexually harvested at work. Mm -hmm. So that was very early. The Feminine Mystique was published in 1964. The Catherine McKinnon cooked up the theory um, in uh, 1974. And um, Paulette Barnes, I, the first of my trio of heroic black women who anchor the early part of the book filed her lawsuit against her harassing supervisor in 1972. So the idea that protecting women against being abused sexually as opposed to unequal pay and the other interests is deeply embedded in the feminist movement. Mm -hmm. And what happened was um, there arose two branches of feminism simultaneously. 
One was the classic feminist movement toward equality. Let's call that the Ruth Bader Ginsburg wing mm -hmm. of feminism. And the other was the sexual revolution, which in some sense is coincidental with feminism, okay? The invention of the pill, the, um, there were legal changes that I won't bore you with. So those happened in the 60s, in the mid-60s, simultaneously. And they were interwoven, but they weren't completely on top of one another. They weren't completely congruent. So the sexual revolution generated a libertine, what I call, I'm kind of an old-fashioned person here, the libertine branch of the social change, which was um, no-fault divorce and easily obtainable birth control and um, co-ed dorms. And uh, so there was a, and, and the um, repeal or the no enforcement of the laws against adultery and fornication. So there was that piece of it. And, that, and we see that in the um, campus situation. That's the closest we have to sexual anarchy in, um, that I know of. And so that's a piece of it. And then, right, my solution, of course, was to have single-sex storming and parietal hours, but nobody listens to Linda. <laughs> the other half of it was the drive for equality. And the two forces came to a head-on confrontation in the mid-'80s when Catherine McKinnon, who thought up the theory that sexual harassment was a violation of the Civil Rights Act, turned her attention to sexual inequality outside of work. And um, there are many areas that one might look at. Rape is certainly one. And, um, and the recent um, concern about Aziz Ansari and the cat person short story in The New Yorker about marginal sex between seemingly consenting bad sex. adults. Bad sex. Thank you. So, but there's, so. It's there an equality are, issue, but it may or may not be a criminal issue. Correct. Right. Oh, I certainly don't right. think it's criminal. <laughs> right, not. It's not a criminal Except issue. Except in but, like what a small right. seat. Right. You know, it's like, as in, that was criminal. <laughs> so. Criminally bad sex. Right. <laughs> does not actually mean. <laughs> right. I mean, it's bad enough when it's negligent or right. recklessly. Right. Um, so. So there are many, if you think about it, it's so interesting, I love this stuff. When I was looking at the um, decisions of the trial courts in the early sexual harassment cases, they said that sex at work was like sex at home, mm -hmm. and therefore outside of the purview of law and politics and moral judgment. It's just the single family dwelling and anything that happens in their domestic violence, marital rape, uh, you know, uh, sexual abuse is outside of our political or common judgment. That's what the court said. They said sex at work is like sex at home, and we all know we can't regulate sex at home. Right. So <laughs> McKinnon, who is in some ways the heroine of my story. I think in a lot of ways um, right, the heroine of your story. I yes. just sent an email from her today congratulating me on the anniversary of Meritor versus Finson, which yes. was a Supreme Court decision that was decided on Juneteenth, of all things, on Juneteenth in 1986. But I digress. McKinnon said, because she has no boundaries on her imagination, she said, let's think of it backwards. If it's abusive at work, to take advantage of the sexual hierarchy, 
then it's abusive outside of work. And she focused on several things. One was rape, which she has been a leading figure in, and one was pornography. And pornography put her on a collision course directly with the libertine force of feminism. And feminism split like a rock under volcanic pressure. And so that was a, the beginning. That split was very weakening to feminism. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, the guys, who are not stupid, you can quote me on that, <laughs> in the media figured out that if they threatened us with a sex strike, we would buckle. So they basically said, gee, we would do anything to get laid. Maybe feminists feel the same way. And so we're going to say, if you want to be equal, we're not going to love you. And that took the form of the cover of Newsweek, which said that you were more likely to be killed by a terrorist than to find a husband over 40. This was, of course, completely erroneous. And years later, they, Newsweek apologized for it. But a very brilliant woman, Susan Faludi, was looking at this. And she saw the evidence start to accrue. There were the porn wars. There was the Newsweek. There was the movie, Fatal Attraction. And I, right. And the other movies, the boardroom, the, bi the big powerful women in the boardroom, Sigourney Weaver and Working Girl, who's working frig girl. frigid as fuck, right? And like can't get, and the, you know, all of Baby Boom, where she just needs to go. It, there was a whole spate in the 1980s of movies of empowered women, liberated white women who made a lot of money and had power and were presented as the epitome of the feminist project, none of whom could get laid. Or if they ever had the opportunity to have good sex even one time, it turned them into murderous monsters, <laughs> which is actually the story. Right. So if I were a guy, I mean, you, that might be at the foundation of this bad sex problem because, you know, they don't want to get killed. Right. So, <laughs> so I, I know that somewhere in this audience is my wonderful editor from my wonderful publisher, HMH, my wonderful editor, Deanne Ermey, is here. And I, and I want to t share with her that the villainous in Fatal Attraction and the androgynously named Alex is actually a New York book editor. Uh -huh. <laughs> the scariest woman in the world. She controls the stories. Right. Which is terrifying. She, she controls the yarns and how they're spun. And you know that I love nothing more than to be told that I tell a great story. <laughs> when people call to interview me, they finally say, Linda, I got to go. <laughs> so, so one of the other things about the, the, the sort of backlash periods, the moments of progress, is that when they span over this amount of time, they also encompass generational difference. And I think that's really key to the story you tell here. I think it's probably key to a lot of people's experience of the past couple of years, and perhaps of their experiences, your, your experiences within feminism itself and the conversation around sexual harassment. Can you speak at all to that? So um, what happens when you have generations, uh, reproductive, generations. It wasn't so much an issue in the gay revolution that I chronicled in Victory. Um, 
And it's not true of movements that are entirely run by men, which is interesting. Right. Is it the daughters that we're, yeah. it's the idea that the work one generation does is on behalf of the next generation? There are two things that happen. That's one. We, I'm going to like be the old feminist here. Uh, it's not a big leap for me. Um, <laughs> we thought that we were doing it for ourselves. Read about Ruth and Sandra Day O'Connor in my book, Sisters-in-Law. They were acting on their own behalf. They wanted to practice law. They wanted to matter in the world. So I will not say, oh, honey, we did it all for you. That's a lie. We did it first for ourselves. And as we realized how hard it was, and as we started marrying and having daughters, we realized that we were doing it for our daughters. And, um, and, and I will say that I have in this room both my biological daughter and my social movement daughter. Um, uh, so I feel very strongly about the, the question of continuity and, and heirship, but of inheritance. But we thought that, and, and it comforted us and I think we all felt like this, even people who didn't have children up their own, like McKinnon. Right. We, we thought we comforted ourselves. And then our daughters got to be old enough to have minds of their own, which is extremely inconsiderate of them. <laughs> and they said, as we had said to our mothers, I don't want to be like mom. And they said to us, we don't want to be like you, mom. And, and I will say that I, I never talk about my family in public, so I am actually not going to speak about my own. But in the movement, um, this is what it felt like. And I am sure that it felt the opposite way to the young women who are coming along because they thought we were wrong about feminism. Or if they thought feminism was OK, they thought we were doing it wrong. And um, they thought they didn't want to be like, and they thought that they were entitled to ha have the baton handed to them so they could do it right. So there were all of these stresses in the, in the generational shift which occurred right about the late 80s when the, when the movement started to falter. It's interesting. Something that's been 90s. pointed out to me when I've talked about these generational dynamics myself is that in some ways, and we're talking in enormously broad strokes here, so this is a massive generalization, but that in some ways, some of this, these patterns that you describe and that I myself have, have written about as well are particular to white women. And that, and that black women do not have the same kind of like rejection of the mother and, and in, within social, a social movement context, in part because some of the struggles are so long and in part because the ability of white middle class women to win victory and power then creates incentives for the next generation to, to act on behalf of that power or with that power in a way that's not exactly oh, true for black women. Oh, and there's a really important thing, which is that white women were... Um, rich enough to be privileged to choose not to work. Mm -hmm. But black women are much more often not rich enough to choose not to work. And I mean, you know, they're still battling their way out of the redlining yesterday. So um, you, ha you don't have 
that generational conflict between the uh, after World War II, when the women left the factories and Rosie the Riveter and stuff to stay home in the suburbs, and then their daughters, that would be me, took on feminism and went back into the public world. You don't have that with black women for right. the most that part. That the very access to the kinds of opportunities right. and, and economic and professional chances creates different dynamics and generational tension. Correct. Um, I want to ask you specifically about, and, and this is about how the generational difference in how this movement and how feminism has evolved in over the past couple of decades, how it shifted your thinking or not. Because one of the things when you first started writing, right, I think right after you wrote Get to Work, I think I'm getting this timing right, you also wrote very critically about uh, the website Jezebel. Right. Which was uh, a young, then a new-ish, um, feminist website, and it was part of the the sort of revival of a popu popular discourse around feminism within a mainstream media that you write about here now. And at the time, you were very critical. I would say that there was an online skirmish around your criticisms of Jezebel, and <laughs> I toilet papered them. <laughs> and I, well, I want to know how it or if and how your thinking has changed about that, both not, not just Jezebel specifically, but about what it, it was doing generationally versus what you thought it should be doing at the time. So I want to say I completely love the history of Jezebel. I feel a little bit like Joe Biden here. <laughs> Going back on what I said before. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, I, I want to honor Jezebel. And um, I had a wonderful opportunity. I recognized what Jezebel had done well before I started writing this book. And I knew when I started writing this book that I wanted to have a chapter, Feminism Revived, about Rebecca and Jessica Valenti from Feministing and Anna Holmes from Jezebel and Andy Zeisler from Bitch Media and Pamela Merritt from Angry Black Bitch. And I wanted to have, because I saw that, I saw it when it was happening that it was the revival of feminism. So let me say a couple things. One is um, when I met, when I came to New York in 2003 and I met Rebecca and Jessica and Ariel Levy, I said then, you are the next wave. You are the ones. And I wrote to the New York, I called my editor at the New York Times Magazine and asked her if I could write a cover story about these hot, young, up and coming, wonderful, <laughs> radical women that I had met. And she said, oh, that wouldn't be interesting. Why would you be interested in them? So I recognized what was going on. Something happened at Jezebel that I really did not like, and I think I probably still don't like it. Mm -hmm. um, a part of me is the most radical, you know, as, uh, as uh, someone once said about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, so old and still so radical. Mm -hmm. The most radical movement feminist you'll ever meet. And another part of me is a Jewish grandmother. 
Now, it is really hard to have those two people in one brain. <laughs> and, and I want the women in feminism to make the world safe enough so that they can put on skimpy clothes and go out at midnight in Brooklyn drunk and not be in danger. I want that for them. I want them to be able to go to fraternity parties and get dead drunk and not be in danger. That's the feminist part of me. But the other part of me doesn't want them to risk their well-being that way. I always say, when I talk to college classes and the students ask me what they should do, I, I say, you wouldn't jump into a shark-infested pond with an open wound. Don't get drunk at the fraternity house. I believe those two inconsistent things are both true. So it's hard. Um, and what the women at Jezebel did, not all of them, they were doing fantastic work about the the undercover reporting on the fashion modeling and, and mm -hmm. the, right. Yeah. They were doing fantastic feminist on the On work. the election and on political Completely. reporting and, and about sexual politics. Right. I, I, a lot of their work on sexual politics was groundbreaking and wonderful. And, and, um, and I recognize and honor that totally. All of the parts of me recognize and honor that. But there were people writing oh. there who were reporting and on television their um, going out and taking drugs and getting drunk and finding out that they maybe were raped but they don't exactly remember it and they couldn't be bothered to report it because they had such exciting other things to do like getting more drunk and I will say that both the movement feminist in me and the Jewish grandmother in me did not like that and I thought the message was damaging and that their attitude towards sex, there was a flat affect about sex that they were purveying, which was hard for me to credit, and also I think is politically damaging. We need to treat sex like something that matters. I think it matters. So I was thinking about drinking at the fraternity house and the end rape on campus movement, which sort of revived as part of this feminism revived thing that I write about, right? So in the mid-aughts, all of these young women whose story I wanted to tell but couldn't get a publisher, um, footnote, um, uh, were, were reviving feminism. And it also generated a, a new Im impetus into the NRAPE on campus movement. And they were arguing that they should be able to go to the fraternity house and get drunk, and the university should protect them from the danger and from the, the advantage that the larger, stronger men would take when they were weakened in that way. And it was like a light bulb went on. And I said to myself, my immediate in instinct when reading that story was, don't go to the fraternity house and get drunk. But a light bulb went on, and I thought to myself, Oh my God, Linda, they're more radical than you yes. are. Yes. They're saying, we want to make a world yes. so good for women that there will be a space in it 
for us to behave foolishly and irresponsibly. And that we don't want to just change the mores and habits of women. Right. We want to create consequences and repercussions for those who violate those women. Right. So that, right, and that, and that is, right, that's, and that's, and that is what we're, what we're in the process of right yeah. now. And, and so you speaking about you having that revelation about the more radical, be, like the young, actually this thing that I was kind of, this exists in the contemporary conversation and you're not on that side of it anymore, right? And, no. Right, I, and, it, and when it comes to the issues of workplace harassment, you never were. There was, no, this right. was within that context of that specific. Um, but the, the question of generational difference around this past iteration of Me Too, I think has been real, that there's been, that some of the pushback that I, and I'm not a spring chicken young feminist, I'm in my mid 40s, but that I get from some women, including radical feminists of, you know, who were just of a your. few of your, but oh no, just a couple decades older than I, has been, come on, it's a little much. So the effort to change the rules, cultures, and, and systems, and change the rules of the game midway through, come on, it's a little, it's a little too radical. So I would never say that. No, I, I know. I would never I know. say that. It just took me a little while to figure out that their collective action to leverage the coercive power of the university to protect them, even however they wanted to behave, even though I would not necessarily approve of it, was so radical. And of course, as soon as I realized where the more radical position was, I immediately went to it. <laughs> so, so, so I saw this phenomenon that we're seeing now in 1998, mm -hmm. when um, Bill Clinton was, Bill Clinton, who was at that time 50 years of age, and the President of the United States, was revealed to have, so have involved himself voluntarily in a sexual relationship with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. And the feminist movement took the conservative position, too radical, don't you think that's a little much? She's a grown-up. She was loving it in public, in the pages of the New York Times. They gathered around him. It's understandable because the person attacking him was so repulsive. So we then had feminists were trapped between the patriarchal, monogamous, religious, paternalistic, single-family dwelling that the Republicans were offering, and the 50-year-old president with, as it turns out, a long history of uh, sexual relationships, um, and a 21-year-old intern. And I went to the most radical place, which is like the people in the brigade in the Spanish Civil War were prematurely anti-fascist. I was prematurely pro-Monica. <laughs> It's true. There's doc there's ample documentation. There's ample documentation of that. And um, and you know you'll forgive me if I get some malicious satisfaction mm -hmm. out of seeing the culture to some extent come around. Although I will say that the establishment, the liberal establishment, was not happy with the fact that I criticized Bill Clinton and defended Monica Lewinsky 
even as recently as last week. Right. right. But, you know, when things get really bad, I call Rebecca. And today, I called her. And, and I said to her, oh, Rebecca, I'm so happy that you're here. It was so lonely in 1998. <laughs> um. <laughs> So you have recently in the in the pages of the New York Times been referred to as a biblical prophet. <laughs> it was it was a little bit of a compliment. Yeah, a little. Yeah. <laughs> it was not like that piece was full of compliments. I just, <laughs> it had it had some excellent um, appraisals of of the book. It said it was very it was wonderful, engaging, readable, um, uh, and something of a Cassandra because. This is the stuff. You, you were prematurely pro-Monica. You've been talking about this very consistently well in advance of a mass public conversation turning toward it. Um, do you feel optimism, oh. pessimism, both? OK, so you know that Cassandra does not come to a good end, right? <laughs> uh, and all the way that he was dragging her into that uh, palace, she was saying, don't go in there. Um, so I am optimistic. All social movements have two steps forward and one step back. The women's movement has had, in some ways, the hardest struggle because we are so dispersed among the population that the, when we change our aspirations and wants, needs, and desires, you cannot move to the suburbs and get away from your wife. So we affect, by fiat of biology, almost every human relationship. And so the pushback on the women's movement and our backlash and our backpedaling has been the most potent of all the movements that I have chronicled. So I am worried about the fragility of a widespread movement that has many intersections in it and is subject to that degree of pressure from the men amongst whom we live and love and work and parent and stuff. I'm worried about it. But I believe that the Me Too movement, the revival of feminism in the aughts by these wonderful online feminists, and the Me Too movement, which is absolutely the product of that revival, and the product, and the and Rape on Campus revival is the product of that revival. So a lot of things are reviving. And I, I think that's evidence of the fact that once someone sees the horizon, in this case, it was more McKinnon than anyone, but there were many people who have a piece of the horizon, and says, look, this is not natural. This is not ineluctable. This is not necessary for the propagation of the species. This is not Darwinian. This is political. Our oppression is political. Once people start to think along those lines, it's really hard to shut it down. And I mean, there are agencies of force that can shut stuff down. 
But hopefully, even in America now, the Enlightenment states of the West, there, there's enough wiggle room built in so that once we've seen our oppression, we can act to end it. And I, I said, McKinnon and I actually said this to each other when I interviewed her for the book. I said to her, Catherine, are you happy? And she said, I am so happy that I have lived to see this day. And she said, I only wish that Andrea Dworkin, her great friend who died young, had lived to see it. So I am cautiously optimistic. I'm, that's good. This is a good <laughs> I'm glad. Okay. Um, I'm going to, so I have this small pile of questions from the audience. Um, it's disconcerting not to see who they're coming from, but that's uh -huh. good. Um, and we have a few minutes and we'll try to, we'll do a lightning round. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, in the book, <laughs> you say the Clinton story was the making of Fox News. Why? Oh, actually, I know that. Um, <laughs> that I know. Uh, I have many sources for that in the book. I mean, Gabriel Sherman's wonderful book about Roger Ailes, um, and I interviewed him blessedly, thanks to my friend over here. I, so um, Fox News was like going nowhere. They couldn't get onto the cable station in New York, and they had all these second-rate nobodies that may not be that different now, but uh, who, were, who were on, and they didn't get, have any subscribers, and it really looked like they were not going to get any traction. And when Drudge dropped the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal, Fox News took off. Roger Ailes called Bill O'Reilly at home and said, get your suit. You're going on the air. Um, and their uh, viewership skyrocketed. And people found the kind of validation of what the conservatives had thought about the Democratic Party, which is that we are immoral and wicked. They were validated, and it was like drugs. It was like drugs. If Bill Clinton had, had, you know, shall we say, kept his fly zipped, many things would be better, and that is why. The irony, of course, also is that Fox News itself is built on the very stuff that it was birthed by condemning. Right. Right? I mean, the, you mean requiring their news anchors to wear short skirts and have glass desks? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know that uh, Roger Ailes, who was so busy condemning Bill Clinton, told Gretchen Carlson that if she wanted to do well at work, she should have had sex with him long ago because he would be good and better and she would also be good and better, although for the life of me, I cannot imagine how anyone would be good and better by virtue of having sex with Roger Ailes. <laughs> How do you think that Monica Lewinsky would be treated if the story came out today? Wow, that's a good question. So, um, so what would be the closest thing? It would be the women who accused a beloved liberal icon of Ooh. treating them badly, mm. right? Mm. I think that would be the closest thing to it. And um, so the, the Monica story is naughty because if you read her 
as told to biography by Andrew Morton. If you read her grand jury testimony, you will see that she was delusionally in love with this tall, handsome, blue-eyed president of the United States who seduced her in the Oval Office. I'm an opera goer, so this is a familiar scenario to me. But the women who have accused liberal icons now don't tell a happy story of falling in love. They tell, in a situation of radically unequal power, may I add, they tell a story of being touched, uninvited, and being touched in a sexual place. So I think that we need to be very sensitive. You don't want to be, in 20 years, the people that Linda Hirschman gets to wag a finger at and say, I told you 20 years ago. Um, so I think that we need to learn a lesson from the Clinton episode and know that we need to be on the side of the women, however beloved he was. I would say we, we, don't, we don't know. They, I think they would not turn. I mean, it was, it was like a lynch mob. Remember? It was like, it was like a lynch mob, what they did to her. Um, I, I think there's enough Me Too fencing up now so that they would not turn into a lynch mob. Right. Against Toward the, the women, women who accused but the their beloved. Could, but there are, we do see similar patterns of defense of right. the beloved, right. powerful figure. And that this, is not gone. That has not been erased. The no. defense and the interest in what happens to the men, even if you're not defending them. Right. The, very, the, the interesting figures, the interesting characters remain the men. What will happen to Charlie Rose? I don't care. But, but, right. You know, but, but, okay. Right. But, right. <laughs> but, but that is not, I think that is unchanged. We are, we are better at not vilifying the people. That's what the question who don't was. Don't have, we, right, yeah. Monica. Right. We're right. better at that part. But I don't really, I guess, you know, remember, I'm the one who said he was wrong in 1998. So I don't exactly get what the appeal of these guys <laughs> is, okay? And I've been married twice. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's not that I don't like men. Second one died, I didn't like dump him or anything. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I just don't understand the appeal. There are good men in this world. What, what is so appealing about someone who would do something that reckless? What should mothers tell their daughters about feminism? Huh. And what should daughters tell their mothers? Ooh. Well, since my daughter's in the audience, I can say, daughters should always tell their mothers how wonderful they are, <laughs> how great they look. Um, uh, mothers should tell their daughters about feminism. Well, here's what I would say and have said. There are objective indications of a good life. Human beings have been thinking about this problem since Socrates. We have a pretty good idea of what the components of a good life are. Enough freedom so that you can make meaningful choices. A life of utility that does more good than harm. And a opportunity to realize your capacities.
And that's what feminism wants for women. And you don't have to rebel against your mothers or emulate your mothers. Just keep your eye on the elements of a good life. And if I were my own daughter, which is kind of a weird thing to think, um, I would say the daughter should say, when the time comes, help us to get to the place where we can lead good lives. And all daughters have different capacities and different needs for a balance of freedom and utility. Um, and then when the time comes, let us take it as our own. I think that's a very lovely answer. Thank you. And I think we are at the end of the conversation. There are a couple more questions. One is Joe Biden and Anita Hill. There uh -huh. is an entire chapter in this book about Anita Hill, and I don't think that um, anyone who reads it will be at all confused about how <laughs> Linda feels um, on that topic. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the uh, the last question, what are we going to do about Roe v. Wade, is really such a bummer that it would be Let me just say something about each of those. As to Biden, read the book, because people talk to me before the lines hardened. Mm -hmm. So I got, I have uh, receipts. I got people to talk to me when they didn't realize that they were going to not want to have said what they said. <laughs> and it's relatively recent, right? Thanks to my beloved editor, we went to press late in the game. So there's new material in here, fresh material, spoken honestly before people had a dog in that fight. Mm -hmm. um, my answer about Roe v. Wade is um, pack the courts. Pack the carts, run for Senate, support the people who are running for Senate, pack the courts until there is not a suitcase left at the Toomey store. <laughs> can I say one thing about you before we? You can. OK. So I want, to tell, I want to share a wonderful story with you. When Rebecca wrote her first book, her wonderful first book, um, uh, OK. Big Girls Don't Cry. Big Girls Don't Cry. I'm getting old and therefore hanting. Um, <laughs> Big Girls Don't Cry. Somebody asked her who she would like to be alone on a desert island with. And she said, Linda Hirschman. <laughs> Do you want to tell him why? Yeah. <laughs> because we would never stop talking. Or arguing. And, and arguing. <laughs> right. So if we're coming to the end, I just want to say, we'll never stop talking. Or arguing. <laughs> well, I, I want to remind everybody that copies of the book are available right outside for sale, Linda's gonna be signing, and I wanna butt in and end with my own answer to the daughter's question that takes us back to what I said about this book to begin with, because I wonder this all the time about how to talk about feminism with my daughters. I, I think about it all the time in terms of the conversations I have with my mother, and I think the most important thing we can do is tell the story and make sure that we tell the story tell the story from our perspective, listen to the stories of the people around us, and that is part of what Linda is doing here, and it's so valuable. She is 
telling us the story. And that is one of the most crucial gifts we can give, not just to our daughters and our sons and our mothers and our fathers, but to readers. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.